continuing on in, in our series, Kingdom Life, going through the, the Gospel of Matthew, this morning we find ourselves, I believe, at day 29 in our 117 days of, of congregational prayer initiative. And I'm going to ask the words of Psalm 117 to again be on the screen, and, and I'm going to open this morning as we have each week, reading the words of Psalm 117 together in community. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. For great is His love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This morning we are going to jump headlong into the Sermon on the Mount. And we are going to camp out in verses 1-12. through 12 And let me just ask you, has, has this series stretched you? Have you found yourselves challenged in your walk in, in living the kingdom life? I know I have. And, and in many ways, not, not just in, in my Christian walk, but in my ability as a, as a student of the Word and as a teacher of the Word to, to bring clarity to something that is so far-stretching and so deep. Let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to begin to work through each of the Beatitudes one by one. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So the message that comes out of the mouth of the, of the king, of the master, of the rabbi... Is, is perhaps the greatest message on morality that our world has ever heard. Those who teach ethics, professors of ethics, will say that, that this particular sermon, whether they believe it or not, has had a profound impact on our world. The world recognizes the power of this, this message. But this sermon goes so far beyond mere morality. It speaks of, of what our, our entire teaching series is about it speaks of the kingdom life and what the kingdom of heaven and, and those who make up the kingdom look like as they live that out. The sermon shows how, how a person who is in right relationship with God lives out and conducts their life, lives out these principles and reveals the kingdom, how, how we truly bring that kingdom the sermon is, is not a, a how-to-get-salvation sermon. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of that. It, it is, it is a, a word picture of how one who has received salvation puts that salvation on display to reveal the one who gave it. So the Beatitudes that we're going to jump into momentarily, I, I, I believe they are... They're character traits. They are, they are the character traits of a, of a repentant believer who is, who is being transformed, ongoing, into the likeness of the king. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines the word beatitude as, as a state of utmost bliss, blessedness, blissfulness, gladness, happiness, or joyfulness. These are, are the traits of God's grace as evidenced in our life. So let's go ahead and look at the first beatitude, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This first beatitude is, is foundational. It is perhaps the most important of all of them because, because until we understand this, until we get this one, it is likely impossible that we will ever be able to develop the others or that, that the Father will ever be able to develop the others within us. The word blessed, it means happy. Happy is the one who. Do you guys want to be happy? Do you know anybody who doesn't want to be happy? I didn't ask if you know anybody who isn't ever happy. But do you know anybody who doesn't want to be happy? No. Everyone wants to be happy. In fact, our culture is, is driven by self-happiness, right? Everything in culture is about finding a way to make ourselves happy. But Jesus teaches the path to true happiness. And that's what the Beatitudes are. He says, happy are those who... And he gives us the path to finally experience true and abiding happiness. So let's look at what this this first one is. It's poor in spirit. What does that mean? Well, I think poor in spirit is is possessing a a deep and tremendous awareness of our profound unworthiness to, to recognize our own abject poverty to understand that we are morally and spiritually bankrupt, that you and I are not capable in and of ourselves of providing for our need. To be poor in spirit literally means to, to shrink away, to cower, or to cringe. And this is, this is an inward understanding, an inward understanding that we possess nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to God. We are like we're like little babies. In fact, let's, let's work with that. Let, let's let that be our illustration. Pretend with me for a moment that, that I have a... Have you spent time around little babies? If I were to take a little baby and set it right down here in front of the stage and then go on about my message this morning, yes, it would probably try and crawl off, but do you, do you realize that within a matter of some small amount of time, that baby would probably start to cry? right? That is a, an incredible picture of poor in spirit. You see, the baby is not capable. It is, it is bankrupt in and of itself to provide for whatever need it might have. And so when it begins to cry, it could, it could be hungry, it could be thirsty, it could be cold, it could be hot, it could be uncomfortable, it could be tired, it could be scared. It doesn't matter what it is. The baby is not capable of taking care of itself It has an inward recognition of a need that it does not have an outward ability to do anything about. And so it cries. Family, that's poor in spirit. When we cry out, recognizing our own bankrupt status, knowing that we need God's provision. Matthew 8.13, or sorry, 18.3 says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That, that phrase, turn from your sin, is, is repent. There is a, a profound connection between poor in spirit, recognizing that we are spiritually bankrupt, and our ability, our, our willingness to repent. But if we do not repent, if we, 
if we do not see ourselves as spiritually impoverished, as unable to take care of the need on our own, as needy and bankrupt, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, is what Jesus says. Because we have no merits on our own to pay the price for the disconnection. We have no ability to enter on our own. So how do we become poor in spirit? Well, by the grace of God. We become poor in spirit because God works that within us when we turn to Him. His indwelling spirit works within us to cry out. But there are some steps. If we are truly desiring to become poor in spirit and to, and to develop in relationship with the King, with the Father, there are some steps that you and I can take that will allow us to open up and begin to experience His power and His movement in our we can, we can certainly begin to pray. We can humble ourselves in, in beginning to live out that we, we recognize we don't have the ability to take care of the need. We can, we can open His Word and we can begin to study and to, to meditate on and we can seek His will in that. We can learn what His, what his commandments are, His instruction for how we become poor in spirit, how we become righteous. Something more powerful than even that, we can get involved in community, right? It, it's one thing to come and sit in, in the pew each week and listen to the message and sing the songs, and that's fantastic. But we can, as, as believers desiring to be, to be poor in spirit, we can get involved in community and begin to develop relationships, intimate relationships, where we are open and transparent, and held accountable for walking our walk. There's a reward for the poor in spirit. The passage says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and last week we looked at what, what the kingdom of heaven is, right? We looked at the when, where, and who, and how the kingdom of heaven moves. So we understand that to be poor in spirit, we need to we need to recognize that the only way to enter the kingdom is to, to come as, as little children who recognize they can't do it on their own, seeking God's provision. We must come in repentance, and we must move forward in obedience, desiring to be shaped into the, the likeness of the king. The second beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is verse 4. To mourn literally means to be sad, to grieve, to lament. How does our culture, how does the world look at mourning? Do we openly embrace mourning or, or do we often try to avoid grief and mourning? Well, hello, who wants to be sad? But the master says to us, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happiness, the path to happiness, requires that we go through a, through a phase of deep, intense mourning. And this isn't a one-time thing. This is recurrent. To continue to experience true happiness, kingdom life, we have to continually experience mourning. But mourning for what? What are we grieving? Satan. So the world around us hears and it mocks those who, 
who are mourning and grieving because mourning is something we want to avoid. But, but when we are convicted of our sin, and when we are convicted of sin within the world and those around us, there should be an, an inward tension. There should be a desire to, to purge that and to avoid further sin. It is an active. Remember, the kingdom is not a, a just a then and there. It's a, a here and now, present tense, active. Right? And so if the kingdom is active, we are actively purging sin. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes and stumble. But we, we begin to, to cry out to God and to mourn deeply that our sin has brought separation. How many in here have lost a loved one? Did you mourn? I'm not going to ask why, because there's probably those of us who have mourned because we're, we're not sure where their eternal destiny was. But let's say for a moment that, that we know that that person's eternal destiny, that, that they went to be with, with the king. Do we mourn because of where they are? We mourn because we are separated. That is the picture of those who mourn. They mourn their separation from the king because they are separated by a condition of sin. I think we realize that, that our problems, the world's problems are in large part unsolvable by human means, right? We, we don't expect that you and I can truly solve the world's problems. But as a believer, those who mourn over sin are, are comforted. That's the promise. What comforts us? Well, we're comforted that, that the king is, remember my bad English? The king is kinging. The king is on the throne. And if we are truly living out kingdom life, then wherever we are is sovereign soil. And so the king is kinging right here. I don't know about you, but that brings me incredible comfort. Because you know what that means? It means I don't have to be in control. Because I suck at being in control. The only thing I am profoundly good at is messing things up. I have a grip on that. And I don't even know how I do that, but I, I do it well. Right? But I can take comfort that the king is on the throne, kinging here. And there, and there, and everywhere where we are. Does that give you comfort? So let me ask, do we mourn? Do we mourn over sin? Do we grieve it? Does it drive us to our knees? And not just our sin. Do we mourn over, over sin that we see in the lives of others, that, that tears families and homes apart, that ruins relationships and people? Do we mourn this cancer that the evil one has introduced into God's creation? Do we grieve over it? I don't do it nearly enough. Let's go to the third. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again here, we see the contrast, this, this distinct contrast between the, the, the believer and the world, the, the normal man, right? The world thinks in terms of, 
of power and influence, of of ability and impact, of aggressiveness and self-assertion. The world thinks in terms of of numbers. But the uh, the world says, be assertive. Take the bull by the horns. Make it happen. Go out and conquer. Right? That's what our society tells us to do. Get everything you can and get it right now because right now is all we got. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. A little bit different. Meek literally means to be humble, modest, unassuming, and gentle. Jesus teaches the direct opposite of what the world tells us to do. Rather than just, just trusting in ourselves, a true believer knows that they are dependent, like the little baby, they're dependent upon God for everything. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his own way, over the man who who carries out evil devices. How many of you ever sit there and, and go, how on earth are they so successful? They take advantage of people. They lie. They steal. Sometimes they do even worse things, right? How does God allow them to be so successful? Well, the psalmist says, don't spend your time fretting over them. Focus on the king. We just talked about meekness is what what meekness is not let's look at that meekness is is not weakness meekness is not spinelessness it's not a person who's pathetic in fact meekness isn't tied to to a person's niceness at all it's not somebody who's a an absolute pushover right how how many times have have we experienced in the world somebody who is truly meek is, de- is described as somebody who's an absolute pushover, right? That's what the world defines as meek. That's not what the biblical definition of meek is in any way. Meekness has been taught as, as great power under control, right? We, we, we know that, that Jesus had incredible power at his command, yet he held it in control because he was meek, he was gentle. But there's something more to meekness than that. I I believe there's a profound comfort and even a joy within the meek of being a servant, having a servant's nature, a servant's heart. The meek find pleasure in lifting others up. Do you find pleasure in lifting others up? Do you find pleasure in being a servant? That's the meek. You see, to the meek, it's not only not about me, it's, it's not only not all about me, it's, it's not about me at all. To, to the meek, it is a hyper-focus on doing for others, putting others before self. And I had this incredible story that I thought was really, really fantastic illustration of meekness and and I'm just going to tell you, trying to get through all of these this morning, I don't have time to tell you that story. So if you want to hear it, talk to me after the service, because it's really, really a good story. And I think it, it really lays out meekness very well. But when someone sees themselves, themselves as a servant, they're no longer able to be easily offended. 
because somebody doesn't recognize them or draw attention to them or, or give them the accolades, right? They're no longer self-focused. It's, it's not about, hey, do, do you not know who I am? Do, do you not know who you're talking to? It's, it's about you. Let me serve you. The meek do not require a place of prominence. The meek person does not need the recognition or accolades. They are, they are content to serve and lift others up. In fact, I think that's a really good definition. The, the meek are content to serve. Are we content to serve? For the meek is that they shall inherit the earth. Others may rule for now, but the meek understand that there's an inheritance coming. There is a time coming when the king will not just reign here and now in me and you. There's a time coming when the king will truly reign. And the, the meek recognize that and their inheritance is they will share in the kingdom. So the meek, the meek doesn't see wealth and possessions as, as something evil. The meek sees wealth and possessions that, that, that God blesses them with and, and brings them into stewardship over as tools. The meek sees anything that they are in possession of as not their own possessions, but tools for the kingdom to reach others, to help others. Let's move on. The fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I really struggled this week trying to condense this down. We could have spent all, all morning for probably through the Super Bowl on this. And I made a commitment. I, Tom, I don't know how on earth you expected me to get through all of these in, in one service. But I made a commitment to do this and, and get you guys out of here reasonably in a, in a normal amount of time and for grace because I don't know that it's going to be 25 minutes. In fact, I know it's not going to be 25 minutes, but I'm going to try and keep it well under 40 per. No, just kidding. So, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, verse 6. Notice that we are not instructed to hunger and thirst for happiness. Have you noticed in all of these there is no command to pursue happiness? Happiness is derivative. True and lasting happiness is a byproduct of doing the others. It comes out of right relationship. There should be, as we said before, there should be a deep and burning desire within us to, to rid our lives of sin, right? Not not just to point it out in others, but to see it in ourselves and to, to get rid of it, to, to drive it out. The person who, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is a person who is willing to, to do the uncomfortable task of rearranging their lifestyle. Any of you comfortable where you are? Happy where you are? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness see their sin and they change their behavior. Not on their own power, 
but by the indwelling Spirit. We change our behavior to not just push out existing sin, but to avoid future sin. We look for the trap so that we can avoid it, not get tangled up in it. John Darby said it this way, to hunger is not enough. In fact, I must really be starving. You know, when the, when the prodigal son was hungry, he went to the trough and he ate the husks and the pods. It was only when he was truly starving that he returned to his father. Let that sink in. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is, is not a, you know, I think I'm going to go grab a sandwich on the way. Maybe just a salad or something like To hunger and thirst for righteousness is a deep, gnawing starvation for God's presence in our life. Do we so desire for the King to King in me, not me, but us, right? Do you desire for the King to King in you so strongly that you are willing to rearrange your lifestyle. Folks, I'm not trying to, to pick and poke at you, but I hope if, if you are being convicted by this, if the Spirit is, is working on you in this, talk to someone. God desperately wants to king in your life. Do we long to be holy? Do we know what holiness is? Do we long to be set apart for God's purpose? Are we happy being about our own business? Remember last week, we we're ambassadors. We are called Christ's ambassadors. Do we desire that? Do we want to be the mouthpiece, the, the focal point in our culture where God makes His pleading to those around us? Does that make you uncomfortable? It does me. But I want it. Do you want it? Do you want the king to king through you? Do we desire to be constantly shaped and formed into the likeness of the rabbi? Do we recognize what zaps us? What zaps us of What zaps us for our, our love for the Word and for the prayer and for fellowship and for community? Do we, do we allow things to continuously take our focus off and distract us from seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness? J. Wilbur Chapman put it this way, and I love this. If anything dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or, or makes Christian work too difficult. It is wrong for me. And I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. The fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Literally, to be merciful is to be sympathetic, compassionate, to show pity. The merciful person doesn't view those around them as as evil, as jerks, as self-centered, self-righteous 
bigots. The merciful views people around them for exactly what they are, blinded and deceived by the evil one. The one who wants to show mercy desires to bring a solution to a situation, to a condition. The one who wants to show mercy, the one who is merciful, wants to bring the gospel of grace. Are we merciful? Do we understand the difference between grace and mercy? Grace is is a reward received not based on merit, but just given freely. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. If grace is a reward that I get that I don't deserve, mercy is a punishment that I don't get that I do deserve. Are we merciful? Please don't cut me off. I'm not good at at mercy when people cut me off. I wrestle with mercy when I drive. I don't like other drivers. I'm not saying I don't have have problems, but but it's their fault. Are we merciful? Does that flow through us daily? It has been said that if we never feel pity for the lost, we will never try to reach the lost for the king. The merciful person has been transformed internally. It's not just an outward change. They didn't just put on new clothes, but they have been profoundly, fundamentally changed from the inside out. While grace looks at sin as a whole, Mercy looks at the sad consequences of sin and wants to relieve the suffering of separation. The promise and the reward for the merciful is they shall receive mercy. They shall see mercy. Now, this is a Hebraic idiom, and I I promised last week that I would try and the teaching team would try to, to pull these out and look at them a little bit each week as we go through this. This is a Hebraic idiom. So let me tell you what they shall receive mercy does not mean. It does not mean that we will only be forgiven when we forgive. It does not mean that we will only be shown mercy when we show mercy. It does not mean that our salvation is contingent upon our forgiveness and mercy shown to others who have wronged or hurt us. That would be salvation by works. What it does mean is that the person who, by the grace of God, has truly experienced God's mercy, begins to display that, to walk that out. And God then makes them a living, breathing... So if the world around us is dead men walking, then the one who is merciful is an absolute walking picture of the king. The king is truly reigning in the one who shows mercy. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in heart is literally to be clean, innocent, spotless, unalloyed. An alloy is a mixture of metals, right? Usually metals or whatever. 
So to be unallied, to be not mixed. Purity in heart refers to to a moral uprightness, not just a, a ritual cleanliness. The pure in heart have been internally profoundly changed. They have latched on to the preceding character traits and are living them out. Not, not perfectly, but they are living them out daily. You see, our, our king is concerned with more than just our outward appearance, right? He doesn't want to just put new clothes on us. He wants to put new clothes on a new creation. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately sick. Do you know anybody? Our heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. But by the grace of God, we get more than just the fruits of our deeds. We have a king who shows us mercy, who withholds the eternal punishment and gives us the eternal blessing. The pure in heart desire greater holiness, to, to be closer to God, to be constantly in His presence. Is that where we want to be? Do we, do we have this constant desire to be, to be closer to the king? The pure in heart is single-minded. They are hyper-focused on God. Fully devoted to being constantly cleansed and made righteous. Fully devoted to, to the glory of the King. In fact, if there is something that will bring glory to the King, they will do it regardless of personal cost. Their heart desires to see the King proclaimed. The King magnified. The king exalted and praised. They shall see God as their reward. The pure in heart see God in everything. As God works within them to, to cleanse and to purify and to make them righteous, they see God moving in nature. They see God moving in the lives of people around them. They see God moving in their very own life. They see God moving throughout history, shaping history moving kings and kingdoms and nations. The pure in heart experience God. They know that there is a day coming where, yes, they will see the king face to face, just as surely as I sit here and look at you. The day will come when they will see the king face to face. But the pure in heart see the king now. They see the king kinging now. How do we get a clean heart? The psalmist says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But how do we do that? Romans 7 says, for I delight in the law, but there is another law at work within me. The pure in heart realizes that they can never truly have a pure heart on their own. Proverbs 29 says, Who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. The pure in heart have a, a constant war, tension, conflict within themselves. We want to be free from sin. Yet we continue to experience sin. 
We don't continue in sin because we, we hate it. We continue in sin because we enjoy the act, right? How many of you willingly do things you hate doing all the time? Not how many of you do them, but how many of you willingly do them because you hate them? The problem is we don't hate the act enough. We may hate that we're sinning, but we don't hate the act more than we hate that we're sinning. The pure in heart has come to a point by the grace of God and by the indwelling Spirit where they now hate knowing that they are sinning more than they love the act. And they're willing to change the action, change the lifestyle, change the situation, change the circumstances. They take an active role in ridding their life of sin. The pure in heart recognizes that the Father needs to create in us, as, as the psalmist said, a new nature, a clean heart. They know that we must repent, that we must be born again of the Spirit, and then, then and only then can the, the person begin to work out salvation with fear and trembling, as the Scripture says. That's not a legalistic work out. That's not a works-based theology. To work out our salvation is to begin to, to live out to work towards the righteousness that God has called us to, to put into practice the things that are required to avoid and to get rid of sin. The seventh beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The definition of a peacemaker is literally one who seeks to make peace. Someone who actively works to bring about peace, reconciliation, healing, in a condition of hostility and enmity. The peacemaker recognizes that God is a peacemaker. The, the story of Scripture from cover to cover is God seeking to make peace with creation, to bring reconciliation to, to a separated creation. Scripture tells us that God is the God of peace and, and that the cross is the, the paramount peacemaking work. When Jesus talks about peacemakers, he's not simply referring to those who keep the peace, but he is talking about those who, who are actively reconcilers of people, those who, who go out and seek to save the lost, to let the king king in their life. David Turner said it this way, this beatitude is not about being passively peaceful, but about being an active reconciler of people. The peacemaker over and over and over seeks to bring the gospel of peace, to show that there is already been payment made for sin, and that the God of the universe doesn't want to punish us, but wants to restore us into relationship. If we desire to be imitators of Christ, we must display the character of the king. The peacemaker is not concerned with self-life. They are concerned with the king's kingdom. They are focused on reconciling others to the king. And they seek to restore peace between the people and the people's creator, God. The eighth beatitude 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verses 10 through 12. Happy are those who are persecuted? Do we read that right? Yeah. You see, there's a supernatural progression through the Beatitudes. If, if we are living out these character traits, we will face oppression. It's promised. Oppression and persecution come, coming from the world are, are normal. They are as much a part of the life of a believer as being pure in heart and poor in spirit. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you and I pursue righteousness, we will be, we will be facing oppression, persecution. But that, that opposition, that persecution, should be for righteousness' sake because of tactless behavior, not for judgmental condemnation on our, uh, on our behalf, but for living out these traits. And it says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. If we're seeking the reward here, we've missed the point. That doesn't mean there won't be blessing here. Absolutely there will be blessing here. But to the, to the believer, the blessing is not about the here and now. It's about the eternal, that which we could never achieve on our own. And the final reward is, you're an excellent company. What? Well, that's how the people treated the prophets before you when they came bearing my message. If you are being persecuted because of righteousness, family, you're on the right path. If you're not being persecuted, I'm not saying you're on the wrong path, but if you're not facing opposition because of of righteousness being lived out in your life, maybe we need to stop and reassess. Are we doing these other things? So let me summarize. I know I've gone long, but let me summarize. We are to be absolutely different from the culture around us, from the world. We are to be focused on allowing the king to transform our very nature from the inside out and thus the lives that we walk out. We are to recognize our our total depravity. We are to to mourn over our sin and the sin of the world. We are to, to be broken and because of this we are to lament, to grieve over sin. And in that grieving we are to be made meek and humble, taking on the nature of a servant. And as we as we learn to do these things, we are to grow closer to the king. And as we grow closer to the King, we will begin to to truly starve for His righteousness. Not just a a little hungry, but truly starve for His presence, His righteousness. And nothing else will satisfy that longing. In, In this we become totally, completely surrendered to His will and committed to a life of holiness. This is not a legalistic checklist. It's a relationship. We make every effort to rid our lives of sin and avoid the traps that tangle us up. 
And knowing the wretches that we are, we pour out mercy, taking pity on those around us because we hurt so much for their condition. Not because we have all the answers, not because we've got it right, but because we hurt for their condition because we were there without hope. We continually strive to purify our hearts and realize that we can never make them pure. So we seek God's mercy and His righteousness to be imputed to us, His purity given to us to transform us more and more into His likeness. Out of our gratitude for all that has been done that we could never do on our own, out of that gratitude, we begin to long to bring peace to others and reconciliation to restore them to right relationship. Not that we are able to restore, but we bring the gospel of restoration. We bring the gospel of hope. We introduce them to how we can have hope in spite of the conditions around us. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we as we begin to, to meditate on and and try to apply these principles, these, these character traits of, of what the kingdom person looks like in our own life. Father, I pray for a supernatural empowering by Your Holy Spirit within us to reveal Your Word to us, to, to open up within us Your power, Your strength, to begin to chip away at the hardness, to bring us to a place of being poor in spirit, to recognizing that we can't do it without you, to a place of grieving over our sin and the sin of those around us. Father, work these characteristics in us. Grow us. Shape us. Father, my prayer for this community is that you would make us each able to live out, to walk out these kingdom principles in our culture, so that we may reflect, that we may emulate your Son and bring the gospel of peace, the gospel of reconciliation to a dark and dying world that doesn't even know it needs help. Father, find us faithful. This is my prayer. In the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen.